This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Oftentimes, that's what it feels like, is it feels like I'm telling the plot from a really, um, like an action movie. It seems unbelievable, really. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Murphy. Human trafficking is an egregious form of exploitation of vulnerable individuals for the personal gain of the employer. What is a surprising statistic is 87% of sex trafficking victims report being seen by a health provider during their captivity. We are very pleased to have five very experienced guests who bring a great diversity of expertise on this issue. We will be speaking to these guests with a particular point of view. We want to understand what their experiences have been like, what their dilemmas and challenges have been on on three levels. The individual encounters with trafficked persons as patients, improving our organizational capacity to respond to human trafficking, and finally, responding with some of the societal challenges surrounding this issue. The issue demands response, whether we're inspired by our professional ethics codes of to do no harm, or we're inspired by the heritage of Catholic healthcare to reach out to the most vulnerable with mercy. Mercy defined as our ability to enter into the chaos of another. Our guests today are Kimberly Williams, Human Trafficking Project Coordinator at CHI Baylor, St. Luke's Medical Center, Houston, Texas. Dr. Molly Gordon, whose specialty is psychiatry and works at Harris Health System, Ben Taub General Hospital, also Houston, Texas. We then go to another part of our geography, Kentucky. We have joining us Marissa Castellanos, Human Trafficking Program Director, Catholic Charities of Louisville, University of Kentucky. Dr. Olivia Middle, whose specialty is pediatrics, and with the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. And here we have Laura Krause, our System Director for Advocacy here at Catholic Healthcare Initiatives. We will begin with Laura Krause. Laura, I'm wondering if you'd help us understand some of the big picture elements present in human trafficking. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. And I I think this is a great way to start. Some of you are probably familiar with human trafficking to some extent, but many of you, this might be completely new to you. So it's good for us to find a common ground and common definition. So let me just tell you a little bit about it. Human trafficking is a $32 billion per year industry, second only really to drug trafficking. The International Labor Organization estimates that 21 million are working in slave-like practices worldwide. This is interesting. 83% of sex trafficking victims in the U.S. are U.S. citizens, but 95% of labor trafficking victims in the U.S. are foreign-born nationals. Uh, so there's a, it's an interesting statistic, and I'll talk more about that when I get into some other statistics from the national hotline. And as Kevin said, up to 87% of sex trafficking victims report being seen by a health provider during their captivity. So we have an extraordinary opportunity to intervene in this really horrific crime. 
let's start out with a common definition. So certainly the United Nations has a definition. The United States has a definition. States will have definitions, but they all have the same common elements. And that is that human trafficking is the act of recruiting, transporting, transferring, harboring, or receiving persons by means of threat, force, coercion, abduction, fraud, deception, or abuse of power for the purpose of sexual exploitation, forced labor, slavery, or slave-like practices, or removal of an organ. I, I do want to say also with regard to that, youth, so anyone under 18, that element of threat and force and coercion does not have to be present. It is assumed that if a minor is being trafficked, they really don't have a choice in that matter. I'll go now and talk about the statistics from the national hotline. So this is really a snapshot. Think of it when you're looking at this, because these numbers are obviously a lot smaller than we just talked about. But that is because this is a really difficult crime to report on. It has a, it's a clandestine crime, and it's subversive. And so we really don't have good figures on it here in the United States. So this is just a snapshot of what we are seeing. And these are 2016 statistics. So in 2016, 7,572 reported cases came into the hotline. There were certainly more calls than that, but these were the actual confirmed cases. Between 2007 and 2016, almost 32,000 reported cases to the hotline. Of these, sex trafficking was about three quarters and labor trafficking about 14%. And I think when you go back to the statistics about how many people who are sex trafficked in the United States are actually US citizens versus labor trafficked who are foreign born nationals, we might, be, uh, we might make the assumption that labor trafficking is underreported here, especially because we know worldwide labor trafficking is by far bigger. 64% uh, are estimated to be labor trafficked with only 19% being sex trafficked. We do see a consistent rise in cases year after year, though, in fact, doubling since 2012. I'll talk a little bit more about some interesting statistics, and I'll just kind of do it on a, in a broad sort of level. But we see to the hotline, females report far more than males, a lot more significantly, adults uh, more than minors, and U.S. citizens more than foreign-born nationals. As far as types of trafficking, and when you're looking at the prevalence, we see tra sex trafficking the most, followed by labor trafficking, followed by unspecified, and then sex and labor combined. Top venues uh, in order of prevalence are domestic work, agriculture, traveling sales crews, restaurant and food service, and health and beauty. And then the top venues are hotel motel-based, illicit massage, spa businesses, online ads wherein we actually don't know the venue, and then residence-based uh, commercial sex, followed by other venue entirely. So what does that look like for CHI states? These are the 2016 statistics for CHI states. And I will say Texas has, has led all CHI states for as long as I have been looking at this information. Human trafficking follows major highways. Um, it follows uh, major events like sporting events, the border. Uh, so Texas is really uh, is a hotbed for this, unfortunately. And I'm sure Kimberly will speak a lot more to that. But Texas had 665 cases, Ohio 373, Washington 168, and we go on and on. But these are, again, reported cases um, and cases that are confirmed. The numbers we know are much higher. 
In addition to these being reported cases, I, I'm sad to say that these aren't even those that are prosecuted. There's great difficulties in prosecuting because of this clandestine and subversive nature, because of fear, uh, fear of retribution, retaliation. Also, the cases are very resource intensive, and there are a lot of immigration concerns, which certainly there are visa status that can help with that, but the, the system is not perfect, and it, it doesn't work well for everyone all the time. I also want to speak briefly uh, about the types of trafficking we see. We see forced labor, bonded labor, which is like debt labor. So someone owes an employer something for bringing them to the United States, uh, but they never really get to pay off their debt because the employer just keeps tacking on fees. Uh, domestic servitude, think of that, anything domestic, uh, cleaning, etc. cetera. Uh, sex exploitation, forced criminal activity, organ trafficking, and child trafficking within which we really see the gamut, forced labor, domestic servitude, forced begging and peddling crews, sexual exploitation, child pornography, mail order brides, illegal adoptions, and child soldiering. So that, Kevin, is, is pretty much the foundation. Well, that offers us a, a great overview. We want to move next into some patient encounters. And here we want to engage the experience of Dr. Mattel and Dr. Gordon and also Marissa. Dr. Mattel, if I might begin with you, as a physician, specifically in pediatrics, there must have been a, an aha experience at some point for you that a patient you were treating was a, was a victim of human trafficking. What, what was that aha moment for you? Dr. Mattel, are you with us? Well, let's move to... Um, Marissa, are you with us? Well, obviously, we're having some technical difficulties with some of our folks joining by, by phone. Just hold on for one minute related to human trafficking. And so we created that case and taught basically medical students. And so I think we're in like we're in our basically end of our third year of of, of teaching that so that all medical students who go through the University of Louisville at least learn how to what to look for in as far as their patients having uh, our standardized patients of so what to look for for the signs and symptoms of human trafficking and then we have a debriefing afterwards that they um, they can pick up some of the clues some of the subtle clues that we include in the standardized patient and then we give them some resources nationally and so it's our our mission basically starting out was given the variety of trauma that's inflicted on these on these patients and and the different types of injuries and illnesses that can occur with both labor and and sex trafficking we feel that all physicians across every discipline needs to be aware and needs to know that it is at least out there. And so th by training medical students, we've, we've started <laughs> basically the process of making sure everyone at least knows it, has it on their radar, at least has it on their differential diagnosis when they see patients. And they can at least know that there's a, there are some um, national sites that they can Google before the patient goes home. And so that's kind of our, our mission um, that we've, that we've done here in Louisville. And um, I don't remember if that exactly answers your question, but that's kind of where, where I was going for it. No, as far no, as the no. challenges, I think you did ask a little bit about the challenges, and the challenge is just knowledge. I mean, I had to learn all of, a lot of this stuff um, on my own and reach out to 
places across the nation um, from a medical standpoint and figure out things about the signs and symptoms and, and what some of the challenges were across the nation in order to share that with the medical students. No, that's very helpful. Um, let's, uh, let's bring Dr. Gordon into the conversation as well. And Dr. Gordon, your specialty is psychiatry. Was there also a key patient encounter for you that was a, a key educational experience for you? Um, absolutely. There was a patient about a year ago that, that comes to mind who was a young adult female who was brought in for acute psychosis. She had an intellectual disability and a lifelong history of child physical and sexual abuse. At one point, she had been lit on fire during one of her trafficking experiences and sustained quite profound burns. She had recently been trafficked for things like food and shelter on the streets and was unable to navigate her social and basic needs. And I think when we found out not only of her history of, of abuse, but also that she was currently a victim, our concern was stopping the pattern of abuse, not simply treating her psychosis, whereas previously our job on an inpatient psychiatric unit is to acutely manage the symptoms of chronic mental illness or substance use disorders or medical problems. We felt like if we didn't create a social and occupational intervention then and, and long-term psychological intervention for her needs specifically, then it was not likely that she would be safe and not likely that she could navigate her own continued well-being after discharge. Um, that led us to explore a lot of options about what other hospitals were doing when they arrived, uh, when these patients arrived in the emergency room or on their inpatient units. Um, we wrote a few papers on, on these struggles that we had, and then we actually applied for a private grant and received private funding to put a psychologist in our healthcare system that specifically will see these patients while they're in the hospital and then follow up with them after they are discharged, along with a case manager that is, we received the Department of Justice grant to do what's called case management matching, where we put a case managed linkage worker in the hospital. So any social worker or any healthcare worker can then contact that person and liaison with outpatient community resources to make sure that these patients that come in in our ER to our OPGEN services, to our psych unit, are then liaison in the community with a case manager who specializes in human trafficking persons. So as a, I think human trafficking has previously been a legal issue and, and approach from a um, victim standpoint from law enforcement and from prosecution issues, but I think the healthcare system and all providers in the healthcare system have an, a very unique opportunity to be able to engage these patients clinically and then refer them to resources both in the hospital system and link them to outpatient services that will help their prognosis, not necessarily separate them from their trafficker all the time, but at least make sure that their basic needs, food, shelter, medical, and psychiatric issues are attainable um, given the limitations of their trafficking experience. I'd like to echo also my colleagues' comments about the importance of medical school education. I currently am the chair for the Physicians Against Trafficking of Humans, the American Medical Women's Association, and medical students and trainees are a vital force in, in recognizing this patient population. Many of my students have brought these cases to the attention of my residents and myself, and so we are implementing a nationwide train-the-trainer program with multiple different disciplines, OB-GYNs, adolescent medicine and health, psychiatrists. Um, emergency medicine doctors where we train medical students in multiple areas of the United States on trafficking through a four-hour seminar and then have them learn the information and then 
we give feedback as they take that information and then um, initiate a presentation on their own, and then they return to their own institutions and start spreading the news about trafficking kind of from the bottom up. So, Dr. Gordon, what's your sense of some of these kinds of red flag indicators, whether it's delayed presentation for medical care, discrepancy between the stated history and the clinical presentation? Do you use those type of educational indicators within your programs? Any comments on those types of indicators that that healthcare uh, professionals use? Absolutely. Um, I think that there is, is a pattern of the clinical presentations for which these patients present. That being said, there are also outliers, patients who present who are trafficked or have survived a trafficking experience who kind of catch you by surprise because they don't meet those red flags. But for for the majority of patients that we see clinically, there there are red flag indicators. There are also questions that we can ask. I don't know if we've moved on to that slide yet, but um, keep in mind that none of this has been none of these questions have been validated in a um, healthcare setting. So while these questions are important, and I think um, my colleague commented on exploring issues of pelvic inflammatory disease and exploring issues of high-risk red flags. And sometimes patients aren't willing to disclose them and the role of the provider and the limitations that the provider has in recognizing these symptoms, asking these questions, and still not getting the answers necessarily all the time that we want or expect. So I think that these clinical issues are, are consistent, but they also have some limitations. And in your experience, you know, it whether you're using these types of questions, whether you're utilizing these types of red flag indicators, and obviously in the education work that you've done to try to build capacity to respond, what fundamentally do you simply find as the hardest part of trying to support and and respond well to these patients who, who present themselves? So I think two things come to mind. Initially, um, scope of practice issues. Where does the line between the, the psychiatrist stop and the line between the, the pediatrician or the primary care doctor start? What is the role of the case manager versus the psychologist seeing the patient? So I think making sure that the provider knows where their role is within a multidisciplinary treatment team and where their um, limitations are so that others would specific skill sets can come in and work alongside others is, is an important thing to explore so that the provider isn't trying to, quote, do it all, be the case manager, be the psychologist, also treat their pelvic inflammatory disease and their psychiatric illness. So I think a multidisciplinary approach is very important. Secondarily, the issues of, of trauma to the provider. Like my colleague mentioned, the the patient may that she mentioned may not have disclosed a lot of her experiences, but had she, she may have done so in a possible, very graphic and very um, exposing way. And the provider should be aware, whether they're a clinician or a chaplain or nurse or social worker, that there could be secondary trauma and to make sure that they have an outlet for their own supervision and debriefing of their experiences with these patients. Because sometimes the the work is quite graphic and detailed, and we want to always consider things like secondary trauma of the provider when caring for these patients. Well, thanks so much, Marissa Castellanos. Uh, You're with us as well. Your experience is unique as well. Uh, You come from a social work background, and you've been focused on serving people in the community, not so much in the the clinical setting, uh, who have been victims of sex trafficking or labor trafficking. Is, Is there a particular encounter that stands out for you because it was a key moment in your education regarding human trafficking? 
our program uh, in Louisville started in 2008, and I know that when we first started, we focused very much on doing awareness raising and collaboration with law enforcement um, as a primary point of contact. But about four or five years into our program, I started seeing that we were actually getting a lot of calls and referrals from healthcare providers. And so around the same time, between 2010 and 2013, we got several uh, referrals from different healthcare providers for trafficking cases. And so I started realizing that really we need to be addressing this issue more from a public health lens. And three very specific moments come to mind, which I would like to just describe briefly. One, we got a report from um, a health department in Northern Kentucky regarding a patient who presented to them with um, advanced tuberculosis and it had been untreated. And so that goes back to one of the um, comments made a few minutes ago about untreated illnesses. And so the patient was being trafficked for labor, forced to work in a private business, and um, not allowed to get any medical treatment for the tuberculosis until it became pretty severe. And so when the patient did uh, arrive at the health department, because the trafficker feared that they might actually die from this illness, the trafficker would pull up to the health department and tell the patient that they had 10 minutes to get their treatment that week, to go in and get the treatment, and they needed to come back outside. And so when the patient would go into the health department, um, the health department workers noticed that he seemed very anxious, and he kept looking at the clock, and he kept asking what time it was and wanted to make sure that 10 minutes didn't go by um, without him leaving. And so after several different appointments with the health department with the same worker who recognized this anxiety in the patient to leave within 10 minutes, they started asking some deeper questions and found out that the patient was afraid of being hurt by the person who was waiting outside for him. And they asked some questions about the uh, his living conditions and his work conditions and found out that he was a victim of labor trafficking. And they called the national hotline and and got access to services through the national hotline, and, and he was able to, to get out that there had to be law enforcement intervention to get him out. A second instance that comes to mind is a case that got reported to us by an emergency department in one of our major hospitals, and this was also a labor trafficking case. The victim was forced to work on a farm, on a tobacco farm in central Kentucky, and she was six months pregnant at the time. And she was made to work on this farm um, during tobacco season, so it's between December and February. Uh, she was made to work really long hours. She wasn't um, paid for her work at all. And she was frequently abused. And um, one of their common ways of abusing her was to hit her on her stomach to cause her extra pain because of the pregnancy and to cause her fear that she would lose her baby. After several weeks of this um, exploitation, uh, the the victim was actually left alone for a moment on the farm to go to the bathroom. They've usually chaperoned her all the time. And she took that opportunity to uh, escape from the farm, and she ran 10 miles over the course of several hours to get to the city where she ran into a firefighter. And the firefighter didn't know what had happened to her, but when she appeared, her feet were bleeding. She had horrible injuries to her feet from jumping and climbing fences and creeks to escape. And she was fearful. She had scratches on her arms and her face, and uh, he took her to the hospital. And in the emergency department, they examined her. They called in a social worker, worker to come talk with her, and it turns out that that social worker had gone to a training with us a couple weeks prior. So she had trafficking in the back of her mind. And the, the patient began very quickly to um, explain that she was being abused by these people in this work. Um, and so it was the social worker in sort of some ongoing dialogue with the patient that identified the trafficking and, and called us for services. 
Just a quick question. It's, I guess it's sometimes just even hard to believe that cases or, or stories like this occur within our country. And so that's part of the challenge, I think, is just realizing that, uh, that stories like this do happen, and they do happen within the United States, uh, certainly within North America. Yes, it is really hard to believe. When I tell that that story I just told, oftentimes that's what it feels like, is it feels like I'm telling the plot from a really, um, like an action movie. It seems unbelievable, really. Um, and the third instance that I wanted to share with you was from a really rural hospital, a woman who was brought into the emergency department on three different occasions, always between midnight and 3 a.m. And she was always accompanied by this man who claimed to be her husband. And the first time that she came to the emergency department, she was complaining of abdominal pain, nonspecific, and so they examined her and treated her for some FTEIs, um, and she was released. And then the second occasion was a couple weeks later, and she came in for um, a burn to her shoulder, which appeared to be an infected cigarette burn, and they treated her. And it was the same doctor, because it was a small rural hospital, um, it was the same doctor who frequently worked that shift in the emergency department. So he happened to see this patient three, these three different occasions. She didn't disclose anything when she was presented with the burns. Again, the same man had, had accompanied her to the hospital. And I should say about this man, he claimed to be her husband, and yet the patient indicated that she didn't want him in the exam room with her. And she also seemed very anxious about how long it was taking. Anytime she was getting treated, she would frequently ask how long had gone by. But she, um, to the credit of the medical staff, they did not let him go into the exam room with her because they picked up the signals that she didn't want him with her even though they didn't really know what was going on. And he was in the waiting room, and he was frequently asked to go back and see her and ask where she was, um, but the staff would not let her back, let him back to see her. On her uh, third visit to the emergency department, she presented with severe abdominal pain uh, and an open wound. It was uh, an infected area in her, in, her, um, in her vaginal area and had it had gotten really infected. They had to clean it and pack it, and at, at that third time in the emergency department, she finally started asking some questions to the, this doctor about, is it possible to be, I don't know, a slave for sex or something? Is that something that can happen to somebody? And so in saying that, she gave just enough information to the doctor that the doctor was very, very concerned about her and was able to look up some information, asked her for permission to get some resources for her, and was able to contact us. She also had to actually be removed from the situation by law enforcement because it was so dangerous for her. But if not for the doctor, it probably would never have been identified. So stories like this, they obviously make us think of what is it that we can do as soon as we hear, uh, especially as healthcare professionals. Let's, let's move a little forward to the responses for building capacity and how different programs are being put in place to increase our capacity to respond. I'd like to talk with you, Kimberly uh, Williams, who's with us from Houston. Can you tell us a bit about your program in Houston and what were your biggest learnings as you tried to build a program responding to these types of stories? Similar to the other speakers who have presented, we found that raising awareness was very important for the overall um, education and training for our hospital here at Baylor St. Luke's in Houston, Texas. 
Initially, we thought we just wanted to just raise the overall awareness in our hospital and in the Texas region about human trafficking. So just bring it to the forefront of individuals' minds, the clinicians, the administrative staff, our security, and our um, environmental services that human trafficking happens and it can happen in this hospital somewhere. Um, and that meant that we put on an awareness event where we invited everyone, even from the community, to come and learn about human trafficking. We invited community partners from outside of the hospital who we wanted to develop relationships to come and present information on human trafficking, and then had a well-known speaker researcher, Laura Lettier, to come and do our first presentation, where she shared with us at that time, based on her research, that 100% of the individuals that she interviewed had come in contact with a healthcare provider but not one healthcare provider had asked the victim or the survivor if they were being trafficked or if were picked up on any of those signs. So none of those healthcare providers were able to provide help for those survivors questioned by Dr. Letter. And from that standpoint, we raised the awareness in our hospital. And immediately after our awareness event, we had about three or four calls from our staff that wanted to say, hey, I've seen human trafficking happen. One was in our emergency room department where there was a 15-year-old female who presented with two babies and then a pregnant again with two men with her. One said he was the uh, brother and the other the boyfriend. The patient couldn't answer any questions. Uh, the patient uh, was not uh, having eye, eye contact with the medical professional. And fortunately, the medical professionals had been to uh, the human trafficking training and were able to separate the victim from the perpetrators at that moment and then call CPS. Another thing that we learned was as we were doing this awareness event, we learned about 50% of the people who came to our training event were not even from our hospital system, CHI, Baylor, St. Luke's, or the Texas region. Therefore, they were from our neighboring hospitals. So Houston Methodist, Memorial Hermann, or Harris Health, Ben Todd, where Dr. Gordon is from. Several people were from other hospitals. So we saw an opportunity to collaborate and to start talking across the street, not just within our walls here at the hospital, Baylor St. Luke, but actually talking across the street to some of our other hospitals to say, hey, what are you doing as it relates to human trafficking and how can we collaborate and partner? In the particular case of the 15-year-old minor, we actually share a roof with a Texas Children's Hospital. And so in that particular case, not to know what Texas Children's Hospital is doing right down the hall from us, it would have been, it would have been helpful for us to know is what I'm trying to say. So we did these awareness events to raise the overall awareness. We brought in a pretty big speaker to speak about it and, um, and help train us on human trafficking. We realized that 50% of our audience were made up of people that were not even employed at our hospital. But then we went a step further and offered emergency room training in our emergency centers at all of our campuses so that we so that our emergency room staff would understand that the open doors the, our survivors or victims may come through your doors first and you need to be keenly aware but then we reached out to some of the local clinics in the area that would provide walk-in clinics that would provide care to some of our uh, victims or some of the survivors and we also facilitated and provided training there so that they would know that they would have a um, an ally with us in, our, in, in order to provide the services that they needed. But one of the unique things that has grown out of it for us here at, in the Texas region is that 
while talking across the street to the other hospitals, we realized that we were doing a lot of the work that could support one another. And so we called together a group of individuals and we called it a human trafficking healthcare consortium where we're trying to meet bi-monthly so that we can talk about what's going on with our hospitals, what's going on inside our hospitals as it relates to human trafficking. Uh, Dr. Gordon, who's on the call, has participated in the, in the first one and will actually present at the next one because of their grant and the work that they're doing as it relates to human trafficking and because they see a lot more foot traffic uh, from human trafficking survivors. But what we want to create is an environment that there is partnership and collaboration with all of the hospitals in our area because we do realize, just as some of our, my colleagues on the phone have said, that this is not an issue that's just happening in one hospital or on one corner, it's a public health issue that's happening throughout our community. And the more that we are aware of it and have training, training and education around it, we can better equip our service providers, we can better equip our uh, clinicians to be better prepared to be able to care for the survivors and the victims and be able to uh, keep themselves and provide care for themselves when they're introduced to this trauma. And Kimberly, something tells me that along that journey, there might have been an obstacle or two. What were some of the key challenges? Some of the key challenges have been basically being able to talk across the street to one another so that we know that we're here. Um, once we had the awareness uh, event, being able to reach out to our colleagues to let them know that, hey, this is the issue that we're working on, would you be interested in coming to the table? As I said, 50% of the um, uh, the, train, the people that attended our awareness event were not even from our hospital, but being able to pull them together in a room initially was a little overwhelming for some individuals. But as, as long as uh, we kept the lines of communication open and utilized our partnerships with the service providers outside of our hospital, like United Way, Catholic Charities, the Cole Cathedral, which is a Catholic cathedral here in town, to really spearhead the uh, message that we're here to help and to serve, not to continue to harm. And this is an issue that we all can work on and feel like we're, in, uh, we're improving our community for the better. And, be and really helping the marginalized and the least of these in our community, which is a foremost effort for us here at CHI St. Luke's. Well, that's helpful. And, and as you speak about the, the training, the education, Obviously, there's, there's many resources that are available across CHI and even nationally. We might ask Laura at this point, what are, what are some of the resources within Catholic Health Initiatives that are available for uh, people to access online? Yes. Uh, thanks again, because we have compiled a, a lot of resources. We have uh, certainly web pages, and they're internal and external, and uh, they are. We have one that speaks generally to human trafficking, so is appropriate for all audiences, and then one that is really uh, meant for health providers. We began this. I want to just uh, in tagging off what Kimberly said. You know, it really does begin with education and awareness, and we had to build that within our own system as well. So we began with web pages and wanted to move directly into a clinical course, but kind of had to backstep so that we could teach our own, our, our own staff of the importance of this and bring awareness. So we created a video, it's a 10 minute YouTube video that was just an overview of the subject with a little bit through the healthcare provider lens. And then that ultimately led into our clinical course which is available internally and externally. So we have it on our own learn system, but we've made it available 
um, to anyone through our public site. And we've had several health systems come to us and even ask for our files so they could put it into theirs. So this course is based off the Massachusetts General Hospital Human Trafficking Human Trafficking Initiative Guidebook. Uh, we developed the course directly uh, with Dr. Wendy Macias Constantopoulos. So it really is an overview of that uh, that guidebook, um, and it is a wonderful foundation for learning. So if you know nothing else, please take this course. It is available, and uh, and we think that it's been very beneficial. We know it's been very beneficial to those that have taken it. And then uh, people like Kimberly then expand that to in-person trainings, et cetera. But it's a great place to start, and there's so much to learn. So we invite you to these resources, and we really hope that you'll take advantage of them. Um, so that we can all become better at this. Thank you, Laura. We'd like to talk about a couple of other uh, national resources. I'm wondering, Kimberly, if you could talk about um, the Polaris Project or any of our speakers who wish to speak about the Polaris Project and that uh, national website that's available uh, with resources. I, I can certainly speak to that, yes. So Polaris... Um, is a, a site that they do many things. They have their own healthcare provider training. They have training for lots of different service providers, I guess you'd say. Uh, they certainly uh, are part of running the national hotline um, uh, through a sort of arm of them, um, but they, they are a wealth of information. So that is a great place to go. Um, and certainly that's where we took our statistics, but they also have a whole book uh, that has to do with uh, types of human trafficking that go far more in depth than even that which we've talked about today. So it's a good place to really even understand it on a deeper level and understand it, how it's happening. Um, additionally, uh, there's an organization called Heal Trafficking, which is a, a consortium of sorts. Uh, they're, a, they're a hub uh, that bring together all stakeholders that might be working on this particular issue and really talk about how you go about collaborating and, and what that looks like. And they also have a guidebook that I think is very, very helpful. And I think that's particularly important as health providers. We, we have to understand that certainly um, identification and then you know appropriate response for health problems, health issues, uh, but the, the, the problems go far beyond that. And the one thing that happens frequently is that people fall through the cracks. If we don't have a well-connected partnership with our community and resources that can do that. So heel trafficking is very, very good on, on that. Additionally, I'll talk about the Health and Human Services or United States Department of Health and Human Services. They have an initiative called SOAR. And they have right now a training that's about three hours long, but they are in the process of actually uh, honing that and making it uh, much easier and much more accessible, much shorter. Um, and certainly there's a lot to know about human trafficking, and it's, it's kind of dangerous to not have enough information, but too much information is a little overwhelming, especially when you're getting started. So that resource uh, will be coming out soon. And that, uh, that will be, uh, I think, greatly beneficial. And I think it'll be another, the, the, the people who have put this together are, are experts. So it's going to be a really great, great resource and a great, especially for healthcare providers when it does come out. At this point, I'm going to identify that we've gone over individual patient stories. We've gone over uh, programmatic efforts uh, to offer a response in educating and ability capacity. And we have also looked at some of the, the larger national websites that are present as well. 
At this point, I'm wanting to give time for questions that our guests may have for each other. Good morning. This is Tamara Borda. Um, thank you so much for your speakers. You all do, uh, have done an awesome job. My question is, after the initial awareness, what's the very next step that some hospitals can do to um, start that or continue that conversation about human trafficking and what's going on in their respective communities? I will go ahead and take that. You know, I think that the initial awareness is so very important. But beyond that, then, uh, you know, they're really, you get down into the more uh, focused education. I think the more focused clinical education is very important. And then I, I love what Kimberly has done is to really start the conversation with community partners. And I really love that she's included in that um, hospitals and systems that might might otherwise be looked at as competitors, but really found that, you know, there's, there's no room for competing in this area. This is something we all have to work together on. And so I think that that's brilliant. So I think you go with the initial education and awareness and you educate everyone you possibly can in the hospital. I mean, everyone, janitors, uh, you know, front desk staff, and then you move into the clinical education and really then go on to building those partnerships. In addition to that, I would say that um, also creating an environment within your hospital that establishes this protocol and policy for how you will react once you receive information that a human trafficking survivor is in your hospital or even a trafficker that may be in your hospital. Because we haven't even talked about that. And we had a situation here in St. Luke's where someone was a trafficker, was a known trafficker that was on a transplant list. So how will our hospital deal with that? And it equipped our staff and clinicians to be able to deal with that issue on a day-to-day -day basis and not come from necessarily the top down of a paper that's presented, but really have stakeholders involved within your hospital who want to see change and are advocates for that change happening that goes throughout the hospital, not just in one department. And I would just add to that that um, it really is so important to make sure it's the entire hospital. As the um, as, as my colleague said, we recently in Louisville got a referral from the HIV AIDS clinic in the hospital, um, and that's a really you know specific department in the hospital. But the social workers had all been trained, and so uh, it wasn't long; it was within a few weeks of that training that they identified. Um, a potential victim and called us. And so it was really important that they had already had internal discussions about how they could respond, who they could call, what kind of consent they needed, you know, how they're going to deal with privacy policy and, and HIPAA. So to have some of that worked out in advance is really important before you have a case so that, uh, so that you're able to respond effectively, efficiently, and not lose time. So uh, developing those community partnerships, finding out who can provide what type of services to you, and defining those roles in advance. As much of that work it can be done in advance as possible, I would strongly recommend it. And doing a, a protocol might help to ensure that you're sort of covering all those bases. Correct. You mentioned before that these things kind of have to happen parallel. So it's not you're going to do all of one thing and fix it and then do all of another thing, but definitely have to parallel. So as you're working on your education, training, and awareness, you're also working on establishing an advocacy group or an advisory group your hospital. And at the same time that you're working on that, you're creating collaborations outside of your hospital with community partners, uh, such as the Catholic Charities or a United Way or some organization that may be similar that has direct service provision with 
uh, victims, but also at the same time understanding what your other hospitals are doing in your area, not to com compete, but al but ultimately to partner and collaborate. So if you have a children, if you uh, we're not necessarily a children's hospital here at Baylor St. Luke's, but one of the things that happened, we we received a child that was in 15 years old, and what we, what will our relationship be like with the Texas Children's Hospital in our area to make sure that that child receives the care uh, care that they need um, without violating any HIPAA laws or anything like that. So it's not just you know one thing at a time as you go, but you're kind of working on all of these things at the same time as you're developing the relationship and, bring, and, and making sure that you have a well-rounded program to really help the victims that come into your, that might come into your doors. Dr. Gordon or Dr. Mattel, any recommendations for immediate steps that a, that a healthcare professional listening today might be able to do? Well, I think it depends on where the patient is, is being seen. So if the patient is being seen in an emergency room and the trafficker is present, then security and case management need to be contacted to, to separate the patient from the trafficker if that is the patient's wishes. Keep in mind also that the patient guides treatment, the patient-centered care is key in caring for these patients. And if separation is not something that the patient is ready for because they fear for their safety or the safety of their loved ones, they must guide their decisions there. Um, and that can sometimes be frustrating for a provider who's identified that the patient is in a high-risk situation. So then providing patient resources for access to psychiatric and medical care, despite the patient's decision to separate from a trafficker, is very important. So they will have continued contact um, if available with a provider. And keep in mind that this is not something that that is going to be solved by one provider or one healthcare system. So to echo Kim's comments, there's going to be plenty of these patients to go around. So um, working within your own system and then collaborating across systems is both an in, intra and inter relationship that is going to help these patients in the long run and, and you know, territorial issues about, you know, these patients are our patients, so they have to stay in our system is, is going to be unlikely because these patients do move between cities, between healthcare systems, and having an open line of communication between hospital systems and resources, I think, is going to be a continued need. I want to thank the guests that we've had, uh, Kimberly Williams from the Human Trafficking Project Coordinator for CHI Baylor St. Luke's, Dr. Molly Gordon, Psychiatry, Harris Health System in Houston, Texas, Marissa Castellanos, the Human Trafficking Program Director for Catholic Charities of Louisville, uh, as well as Dr. Mattel with the Pediatric Specialty in University of Louisville in Kentucky, and of course, Laura Krause as well, our System Director for Advocacy. On the screen now, you, see, you can see the types of online resources that are available to you for more education and training, whether that's the Polaris Project, whether that is the Heal Trafficking, whether that is SOAR, and finally, the city of Houston has its, its own site, which uh, identifies not only education, but also events and toolkits as well. Appreciate everyone's participation today on this important issue where, again, healthcare providers can play an important role since 87% of sex trafficking victims report being seen by a healthcare provider during their captivity. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate your participation. 
and have a great week. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.